In this episode of Physically Spiritual, I will explore how insights from neurology inform the way Christians approach character change to become more like Christ. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I have discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. In Greek mythology, Daedalus was a famed creator and inventor. He was exiled from Athens, though, and he traveled to the island of Crete, where the queen of King Minos collaborated with him to seduce a bull. This perverse act spawned the Minotaur, a ferocious beast that was half bull and half man. In punishment, King Minos made Daedalus build a great labyrinth to trap the Minotaur. Then he held him captive with his son Icarus on the island of Crete, blocking their passage off the island by sea. Now Daedalus, observing the flight of birds, conceived the idea of building a set of wings for him and his son using the bird feathers and candle wax. He created these wings, and before their fated journey, Daedalus warned his son not to fly too close to the sun because the wax would melt, and not to get too close to the ground because the salt spray from the sea would wet the wings and weigh them down. Now as they took off and started heading away from Crete, Icarus, his son, was elated by the experience of flight and excitedly started to fly too high. His father wasn't able to stop him, and the wax began to melt, and he descended into the sea where he drowned. Now this cautionary tale from Greek mythology teaches us something very important. Icarus, the son of Daedalus, was a symbol for desire and freedom from constraint. His father, Daedalus, was an image of ingenuity and design, but both in their own ways were symbols of hubris. Daedalus, both in Athens and on Crete, uh, was willing to design things outside of the natural law to push human ingenuity to the point of, of breaking the design of the gods. And his son, Icarus, was also a symbol of hubris, of breaking free of bonds not trusting the rules, of doing things too outside the box and paying the punishment. Now, what does all this have to do with, with our conversion, with Christianity, with living a life that God is calling us to? I think these, these two figures uh, create kind of an image of where we need to go. See, as Christians, in a sense, we need to get off the island too. We need to get out of our captivity. We need to break free of the captivity of sin, get, in a sense, away from the minotaur of our own life, away from whatever habits and brokenness has, has uh, brought us to this point in our life. But on our journey away, right, we need to be moving in the right direction. We both need the desire. We need the passion. We need Icarus's energy and movement to get us away but we also need Daedalus's ingenuity and design and calculation to make sure we're moving in the right direction. And this is what I want to talk about today, this mixture of both having the desire, the passion, the heart, 
and also having the ingenuity, the, the design, the model, and having the mind. You might think of this topic that I'm going to talk about today as the study of neurotheology. It's a Christian perspective on how to grow in maturity using the insights from neuroscience. Uh, and a lot of these insights are gleaned from what's sometimes called the life model or thrive today. And I'll put links in the show notes to these two resources. Uh, this idea of neurotheology was really spawned by putting together two great thinkers, two scientists from um, from the 21st century. The first is Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was a great uh, Christian spiritual writer, but he was also a philosophy professor at USC. Uh, he was famous for uh, his writing in spirituality. Uh, and one of his biggest ideas that he pushes that Christianity is not just living for God, but it's a living with God. It's not just living for God, it's a living with God. It's having a dynamic relationship. And one of his other famous ideas was that uh, of the great omission, the great omission. It's a play on words for what we call as Christians sometimes the great commission. The great commission was at the end of Jesus's life, right before the ascension. He gives this commissioning to the apostles. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So this mission is sometimes called the Great Commission. And he pointed out the fact that our churches often follow the Great Commission. We go out and we bring people into the church and we baptize them. But then we also commit the Great Omission. We haven't made the people into disciples and we haven't taught them to observe all that the Lord has commanded them. Oftentimes people come into church, they might have a strong conversion experience that brings them there and, and, and some transformation that goes along with that conversion. But then once people are kind of into their faith, um, we don't often do a good job in the church of helping people grow into full maturity to observe all that the Lord has commanded and we're not just called to get people in the, into the church. We're called to grow to full maturity and help others to grow into full maturity. So Dallas proposed that we start bringing spiritual disciplines into our life to help grow into this maturity. Things like studying the scripture, uh, prayer time, having uh, discussion groups, having life groups together, small groups in our churches, doing things like reading spiritual books and, and theology books. Right? These are spiritual disciplines we could practice to help us grow into full maturity. The other uh, scientist who's gone to inform this, uh, the, the concepts of the life model or thrive today is Dr. Alan Shore. Now, Dr. Shore is a psychologist and a researcher in neuropsychology at UCLA. He builds on the foundational ideas of attachment theory that were put forth by Bowlby, and he studies the development of the human brain uh, through the early stages of life with an eye to then informing how to treat mental illness. So this idea of attachment, what's this idea of attachment? The term attachment means it's an affectional bond or tie between an individual and an attachment figure. So it's a relationship between two people, and it's usually a caregiver. So such bonds might be reciprocal between two adults, but between a child and a caregiver, these bonds are based on the child's needs for safety, security, and protection. 
which is most important in the infancy of childhood. This theory proposes that children attach to caregivers instinctively for the purpose of survival. So the basic idea is that we as children get this kind of foundational relationship with our parents, with our caregivers, in order to have our survival needs met. This happens in our implicit or procedural memory, which means that that this relationship, this heart-level connection we have with our caregivers isn't something that we remember in pictures and words. Um, it's something that we remember in our emotions, in our feelings. It's, it's on a deeper level. Uh, Dr. Shore says that this internal working model is used by all human beings as strategies of affect regulation that non-consciously guide us throughout life in variously effectively charged environments. So this, this attachment that we have that's sort of stored in us from these primary relationships when we're very young, this becomes sort of a model by which we relate in all other emotionally charged situations for the rest of our life. Um, so this primary attachment is a sort of Rosetta Stone that our brain uses to navigate emotions and relationships later in life. He also says that the, the self-organization of the developing brain occurs in the context of a relationship with another self, another brain. So when, when we're young, when we're little, we're essentially watching those who love us and experiencing their love, the expression on their face, the sound of their voice, the posture, how they respond to our various promptings, our, our cries and noises. And based on these experiences, uh, our brain develops certain structures that match what we will expect to need uh, in the context of that relationship with that caregiver. So for the, the rest of our life moving forward, if we don't try to grow in maturity intentionally past that infancy stage, and that infancy stage from like the last trimester of, our, uh, of being in our mother's womb until about two, our brain doubles in size. So there's this vast growth in the brain that kind of sets a lot of things up for the rest of our life. And this is why psychologists and neurologists will study the development of the infant brain so much. So if, if we don't do anything to change this attachment, to grow in this attachment, then the way that we're sort of trained to relate to the world emotionally from our infancy becomes the way that we continue to expect things to happen the rest of our life. Meaning if we encounter somebody later on um, that, let's say, reacts to us in a way we don't expect, right, that, that hasn't, um, isn't a part of that foundational memory, right, we're going to feel a certain way toward that person, right? And all this is happening sort of unconsciously. It's happening in, in the level of our implicit memory, our procedural memory. So it isn't something that we're calling to mind. All right, so hold these two, um, these two thinkers together, both uh, Dallas Willard's call away from the great omission toward a Christianity of full maturity, full spiritual maturity and full emotional maturity, and also the insights of Dr. Shore, this idea of attachment theory, that we have this primary relationship in our infancy that forms our brain and then creates this sort of emotional Rosetta Stone by which we relate 
to the world throughout our life. So the third figure I want to introduce you to is Michael Hendricks. Michael with Dr. Jim Wilder wrote a book called The Other Half of Church, which I will uh, link to in the show notes. So Michael Hendricks was a, a Christian formation pastor. He had an experience of conversion in campus ministry that really transformed his life. And so he gave his life to serving the church and wanted to then sort of pass it on, help others in the church have the experience that he had that, that changed his whole life and turned his life toward God. Uh, but he found that the spiritual disciplines that he tried to teach people to do, things like scripture study, prayer, discussion groups, sort of these common things we see happening in churches, sort of had mixed results. It worked for some people. Some people would come into the church and sort of catch it. Uh, and then other people, they continued to struggle with addictions. They continued to struggle with other emotional issues. They continued to struggle with bad habits and sins. And these spiritual disciplines that he was teaching them, even if they could regularly practice them, they seemed not to change their life. This all changed when he met Dr. Jim Wilder. Now, Dr. Wilder is the one who coins himself the neurotheologian because he has advanced degrees in both neurology and theology. And what Dr. Wilder pointed out based on the insights from neuroscience and then also the insights of, of, um, of Dallas Willard, that the church is basically addressing the wrong side of the human brain. There's this theory called the lateralization of the brain. And it's a bit of an oversimplification, but the basic idea is that the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain focus on different things. The left side is involved in conscious thought, language, logic, stories, and strategies. The left side is, uh, for lack of better terms, kind of the Daedalus in our mind. The right side focuses on our individual and group identity, our emotional connections, our feelings of safety or threat, and our attachment to others. This is kind of the Icarus in our brain. So we have a dual processor inside of us. The right is uh, sometimes called the fast track. The right side of the brain is what develops in those early stages. So before you're laying down memories of language, uh, going through rational thoughts, having logic as a little baby, the right side of your brain is, is working extremely hard, growing. What the right side of the brain does is it focuses on the whole and on your relational identity. You develop a skill called joint-directed attention. What joint-directed attention is, is the ability to connect with another person and to focus on the same thing together. The right side of the brain asks essentially the question, when you're, fo fo when you're facing a moral decision, is this what my people would do? Is this what my family would do? Right? It, 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 it faces a moral dilemma through a relational posture. On the other hand, your left side of your brain, you could also call it your slow track. It's focused on specifics, focused attention. When it's making a moral choice, it experiences your passions and the information, the data that you know, and it asks the question, what should I do? What should I do? So you see the way that these different processes we have approach a moral choice. Now, they're called the fast track and the slow track because the right side of the brain is literally faster. It's faster than the speed of thought, you might say. The right side of the brain 
processes information more quickly than you can be conscious of it. So if you enter a room and you encounter a group of people, the right side of your brain is at work trying to keep you safe and trying to keep you connected to the people around you. So the right side of your brain, through different processes, one would be the working of mirror neurons, they're encountering the nervous systems of the other people in the room to detect signs of safety and danger. And then your body is reacting to those signs. On the other hand, the left side of your brain, the slow side, is working much more slowly. You're going to start noticing details, maybe what they're wearing, what they look like, what what you smell, but it's that conscious processing of what's happening. That right side process of feeling safe or feeling threatened is happening more quickly than that conscious process of noticing things and coming to a realization about the situation. So the right side of our brain, that fast track, that emotional part, that's the side of the brain that's more involved in our default reactions meaning when we're lonely, when we're tired, when we're angry, when we're afraid, when that immature part of us is likely to come out, it's the function of our the right side of our brain, that right side process, that fast track process comes out. So here is what uh, Michael Hendricks says in the other half of church. He says, when we neglect right brain development in our discipleship, We ignore the side of the brain that specializes in character formation. Left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrines, willpower, and strategies, but neglects right brain loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. Ignoring right brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love, but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life, especially during distress. In a left brain community, we are taught Christian doctrine, but the doctrine has difficulty showing up in our instantaneous reactions. The last two sentences there are so powerful to me. That idea that we we learn the ideas, but we can't live what we know. We know information about God, but we have difficulty feeling God's presence in our day-to-day life. So what they propose isn't to go in all right-brained, right? The answer isn't, well, I don't just need more information. I need this sort of emotional skill set to grow, to heal. So I'm going to sort of ditch the information and go hog wild on the emotional side. On the other hand, it's not the other side. What they propose is a whole-brained Christianity, a whole-brained Christianity, a Christianity that uses the whole person, all of the tools that God gave us, all the tools that God designed us with. So in complement to the spiritual disciplines that Dallas Willard proposes, they also want to develop relational skills, relational skills training. And the idea is to build a whole brain Christianity, a Christianity where, um, where you're not just having the information and not having the motivation to live it, And on the other hand, I think we can get into a Christianity where we have the motivation and the energy, but we don't have the direction, right? We don't have the teaching, the sound doctrine to push us in the right direction. Honestly, I think in the last 60 years, the Catholic Church has basically swung over to a full right-brain Christianity, then in reaction now over to a full left-brain Christianity. 
This is going to be kind of an oversimplification and a caricaturization of history. But after the Second Vatican Council, in, in many churches, sort of these right brain activities were very strongly emphasized. It was emphasized that, you know, we're just together. It's this community focus. And we're going to spend time together and experience love and then go out and share that love that we're experienced in social justice. So the idea was, and, and the focus was, that, that we experience love, we experience community, and then we go out and share that community by loving others. But that left side was neglected. Doctrine was neglected. People taught things that the church wasn't teaching. So while people had motivation and energy, oftentimes they did things that were destructive to them and others. So it didn't bear the fruit that many people hoped it would have. On the other hand, in reaction to that, we've now swung to a majorly left-sided approach to church. We have like an information arms race going on. <laughs> Just look at the online content that's out there. 30 years ago, it was difficult to find, quote-unquote, good stuff, meaning orthodox material about the church. Nowadays, there's so much material out there that no one could ever possibly listen to it in their whole life, right? There's whole online Catholic, like Netflix things with thousands and thousands of videos and talks and programs and eBooks and everything else. And there's how many different podcasts and YouTube channels and, and books and talks and everything else, right? We have this sort of information overload, but on the other hand, I think um, people are still struggling to live their faith. They're struggling to experience that kind of character change, that transformation of heart, that full maturity in their faith. So what we really need to do is we need to have a whole brain Christianity. We need to address both sides of the person. Yes, we do need the doctrine. We need the dogma. We need the information to keep us moving in the right direction. But we also need those relational skills. We need to experience a love that transforms a community that, that makes God flesh for us. And we need to go out and share that to the world to bring them in. We need all of this together in the church. With that, this episode of Physically Spiritual is a two-part episode. So I'm going to break here. But before I do, I want to invite you all to support Physically Spiritual by becoming a member of the Totus Tuus community. The Totus Tuus community are patrons of Physically Spiritual. They donate any dollar amount a month, and in return, there are certain perks that you get. Uh, if you want to join the Totus Tuus community, go to physicallyspiritual.com. If you want to get any of the content that's published by Awaken Catholic, access to an alternate to social media, or your perks as a member of the Totus Tuus community, consider downloading the Awaken app. The Awaken app is at theawakenapp.io, or search for the Awaken app on the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. And with that, tune in next week for the next installment in part two of this episode of Physically Spiritual. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment every rating you give in the show, and a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.